May it please the court, Alex Trager for appellant Roderick Scott. Mr. Scott plausibly alleged that his trial counsel provided constitutionally ineffective assistance by failing to investigate the argument at sentencing that he was similarly situated to his co-conspirator, Curtis Webb, and therefore warranted a below-guideline sentence, just as the district court had already given Mr. Webb. Because nothing in the record conclusively shows that his Sixth Amendment claim is without merit, Mr. Scott was entitled to an evidentiary hearing. The district court erred in denying his claim without granting him that opportunity. Now, the most straightforward way for this court to resolve this case is to reverse the district court's erroneous conclusion that Mr. Scott cannot show prejudice. The district court reasoned, and this is at page 56 of the addendum, that Mr. Scott could not show prejudice due to his counsel's failure to investigate Mr. Webb's parole status because his sentence was not grossly disproportionate to that of Webb. That reasoning fundamentally misunderstands Strickland prejudice. Under the Supreme Court's decision in Glover, any increase in a defendant's sentence due to counsel's deficient performance constitutes prejudice under Strickland. So the question is not whether Mr. Scott's sentence is unconstitutional by itself or vis-a-vis Mr. Webb's sentence. The question is whether there's a reasonable probability that his sentence would have been shorter had his counsel investigated and articulated the similarities between Mr. Scott and Mr. Webb at sentencing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, you know, um, do you have primarily a defense, a criminal defense practice? No, Your Honor. All right. Um, And I'm just going to just ask this question because I I don't know of any criminal defense lawyers that do deep background dives into uh, the criminal history and the current status of probation on every single co-defendant, particularly in drug cases where there may be 30 of them. You know, um, and if they did it, I'm pretty sure that we won't pay for it under the CJA, right? I mean, so it seems to me that you still have to get conduct that you can kind of facially make an argument that it's deficient. And I'm just having a hard time trying to figure out how the conduct can be deficient when you, you, you have a hard enough time investigating my own client without uh, investigating 30 other defendants and, and various witnesses. Two responses, Your Your Honor. So first, Judge Erickson, as a general matter, defense counsel regularly make the argument that their client is similarly situated to co-conspirators. And that's because the, sentence, the statutory sentencing factors require district courts to consider and avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities. It also comes from the Supreme Court's um, decision in Gaul and this court's decision in Lazenby. And both but, but the disparity is is to people generally convicted of the of the same crime, not your co-defendants. I mean, uh, we've repeatedly said that the person standing in the conspiracy two doors down on the in the cell block, that's not the disparity that we're concerned about. We're we're concerned about disparate sentencing on the category of criminal, right? Well, I would push back on that, Judge Erickson. I I think that um, the Supreme Court's decision, again, in Gaul, where it credited the district court's comparison of co-defendants in that case, suggests that a district court can consider not just national disparities, but defendants in the same case. And and this court has recognized that as well. But, But taking a step back, defense counsel routinely make this argument. They routinely make the argument on appeal 
both us and the government have cited scores of cases where this court addresses sentencing disparity arguments. So applying the teachings of cases like Strickland and Hinton, defense counsel has a obligation to conduct a reasonable investigation into the argument at sentencing that their client is similarly situated to their co-conspirators. But does that mean that any time the judge just interjects something in the middle of the sentencing hearing that you weren't prepared for, you're going to tell that judge, that sentencing judge, hold on, wait a minute, I've got to go out and do additional discovery because you just interjected into this this question of, well, he's on supervised release and was the co-defendant? And then the, the lawyer's response is, Judge, you've got access on your computer to what everybody's facing and you've got the pre-sentence report. I don't, you know. Um, and yet, you know, uh, Mr. Tupman here made a forcible argument that he should be sentenced to nothing longer than the co-defendant no matter what. So I don't think that's what we're asking for, Judge Erickson. So on the facts... Well, what are you asking for then? So we're asking for a remand for an evidentiary hearing. But, but on the facts of this case, as the magistrate judge noted, Mr. Scott and Mr. Webb were nearly identical on paper. And so on those unique circumstances, that's at pages 27, 28 of the addendum, Mr. Scott's counsel had a constitutional duty to investigate whether there were legs to the argument, that they were similarly situated, and therefore Mr. Scott should get a downward variance, just as the district court had already given Mr. Webb. And nothing in the record um, indicates um, that Mr. Scott's counsel didn't undertake that investigation. And, and there's two pieces of evidence that I would point you to. So one is the downward variance motion where Mr. Scott's counsel never makes the sentencing similarity argument and mentions Webb just once. And the second is, as you pointed out at page 169 of the appendix, where the district court asks um, whether Mr. Webb was also under court supervision, and Mr. Scott's counsel says, I don't know. Now, in your question, Judge Erickson, you, you asked why wasn't it reasonable to just direct the court to the PSR? And that's because, again, under Strickland, under Hinton, Rompia, the Supreme Court has made clear that counsel has a constitutional duty to undertake reasonable investigations. Would counsel and, have access to the other uh, uh, co-defendants' PSIR? He would not, and that's precisely why it was unreasonable to rely on the PSR. Mr. Scott's counsel had no way to know whether the Mr. Webb's PSR accurately stated that he was on parole, and he had no way of knowing whether that would bolster or undermine his argument that his client was similar to Mr. Webb and also warranted a downward variance. And, and so the Third Circuit case, Sepling, that we cited in our brief is, is of a piece with this case. There, um, defense counsel never conducted an investigation into whether the drug that his client had been charged with possessing and distributing was an analog to ecstasy, which the probation office had used for sentencing calculation purposes. And there, the Third Circuit had no trouble finding that defense counsel performed unreasonably by basically delegating the duty to investigate whether that analogy was proper to the probation office. And if that kind of delegation was unreasonable in that context, in Sepling, it was doubly unreasonable here because, again, Judge Erickson, defense counsel had no access to the PSR. But we're not asking defense counsel to sort of take extraordinary measures. On the facts of this case, where Mr. Scott and Mr. Webb were nearly identical, criminal history category, offense level, 
guidelines range. They both had prior drug convictions. The one apparent difference was Mr. Scott being under court supervision during the conspiracy. So reasonable counsel would have said, gee, I wonder if Mr. Webb is also under court supervision during the offense. And the answer was not hard to find. That answer, um, you could find Mr. Webb's records. They are readily accessible online, available for free. And well, let me ask you, I, what do we make, if anything, of the fact that the district court later reduced both of the sentences and was, the, was this disparity issue known to the district court when it made the sentence reduction? So, Judge Malloy, I don't think that, that you should credit that, and the magistrate judge in its report and recommendation explained why, which is that a disparity still remains. It's about a, a 21-month disparity. And so, again, had the district court granted Mr. Scott a downward variance at sentencing, um, he, too, would have gotten the benefit of the Rule 35B reduction and would have had a lower sentence than he did today. And, and so, again, that I want to turn back and refocus the court on prejudice. That's the fundamental error that the district court made. At page 56 of the addendum, the district court says, Mr. Scott wasn't prejudiced by his counsel's failure to investigate Mr. Webb because his sentence was not grossly disproportionate. That is not Strickland prejudice. The question is whether his sentence would, there's a reasonable probability his sentence would have been shorter had his counsel conducted the investigation. Not whether his sentence violates the Eighth Amendment or is unconstitutional vis-a-vis Mr. Webb. Focusing on, on performance, there, there are sort of two questions I think that the court has to, has to answer. The first is whether he had a constitutional duty to investigate Mr. Webb. And that's what we've been discussing, Judge Erickson. The second question is whether counsel, in fact, conducted an investigation into Mr. Webb. And, and there, nothing in the record forecloses Mr. Scott's claim that his counsel didn't investigate. Again, you have the motion for a downward variance. That's in the appendix at page um, 146. And you also have the sentencing transcript. Again, pages 165 and 169, where counsel basically admits that, that he doesn't know. Now, the government has made two arguments in response, neither of which withstand scrutiny. The government's first argument is that even if Mr. Scott's counsel didn't investigate Mr. Webb, he raised other arguments for a downward variance. But that argument runs headfirst into this court's decision in Foster, where this court explained that undertaking an investigation and raising one argument doesn't excuse the failure to investigate and raise another argument when they don't conflict. And that is exactly the case here. The government's backup argument fares no better. The backup argument is that because the district court didn't make credibility determinations, that there was no need for an evidentiary hearing. But this court routinely reverses remands for an evidentiary hearing, not because there's a credibility dispute, because there are facts in the record that are missing that are necessary to apply Strickland and make a determination about whether a Sixth Amendment violation has occurred. And for that, I would direct the court to the Mayfield decision, 955 F. 3rd 707, and DAT 920 F. 3rd 1192. So in Mayfield, for instance, the defendant argued that his counsel was ineffective by um, misadvising him to deny a plea and go to trial based on the mistaken belief that he was subject to a sentence enhancement. And this court found that that was 
Um, counsel performed unreasonably because with rudimentary research, he would have learned that the enhancement didn't apply. But it remanded for an evidentiary hearing to determine uh, whether there was prejudice due to that misadvice because, for instance, um, whether statements in the plea agreement um, cured that, that misunderstanding. And similarly, in DAT, same scenario, the defendant was misadvised by the immigration consequences of his plea. The court, again, found that would be unreasonable, but reversed for an evidentiary hearing because, again, it was unclear whether he was prejudiced by that advice. And this case is in line with Mayfield and DAT. Here, it is unclear whether Mr. Scott's counsel investigated Mr. Webb and his parole status. And that's as the magistrate judge found because his affidavit doesn't mention whether he undertook that investigation. The magistrate judge made that finding at page 38 of the addendum. You can see for yourself at page 180 of the joint appendix. That's Mr. Scott's counsel's affidavit. And neither the government nor the district court have quarreled with that evidentiary lacuna in the record. So for those reasons, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Kelderman. May it please the court and counsel. Uh, Your Honor, the the reason you'd have an evidentiary hearing, Your Honors, uh, would be if there's a disputed fact. There's nothing in the record to show that uh, public defender Tupman did go and look at what Webb, uh, what Webb's status was, what his parole or supervision status was. So uh, there's no no ability by anyone to make a finding to the contrary. Uh, an evidentiary hearing is not going to work in uh, Mr. Scott's favor because right now the way that the record looks is he didn't research that. Uh, but the standard that works uh, in cases like this there's a presumption, and it's highly deferential toward counsel's behavior or counsel's uh, actions and their representation. And there's a strong presumption that the conduct falls within the wide range of reasonable assistance. Uh, and it's not enough to just show that there is some conceivable difference that might have been made. And in this case, there is no reasonable probability uh, of a different sentence occurring. And I say that, I say that with that level of confidence because the district court made a record. We, uh, we have district court, uh, district judge Schreier here making a record that there were a number of other things that the court took into consideration. When Judge Schreier had before her Curtis Webb and his entire history and background, at his sentencing, when she sentenced him, she was looking at everything, presumably, and she sentenced him to a below-guideline sentence, even though he's a career offender. When she had in front of her Roderick Scott, she said, no, there will be no downward variance, no downward departure in this case, because of a number of factors. She cited how quickly he reoffended. She talked about how he was on supervision. Uh, that he was doing this to support his daughter. He was making decisions to be a drug dealer uh, in order to support his daughter. Uh, 
Uh, and, and she also had before her a defendant. And she knew very well who this defendant was. Uh, but these are two defendants who uh, the reference was made that they were uh, nearly identical on paper. My argument is that they weren't even close to identical on paper. They were identical only in one respect, and that's that they both had two prior convictions that caused them to be career offenders. Roderick Scott had nine felonies compared to four. Nine drug felonies, I believe, if I remember correctly. He had five more felonies. Uh, the appellant in the brief points out that two of those were, uh, three of those were when he was 17. Okay, well, we can eliminate those three. There's still two more felonies. The court could uh, look at, specifically uh, under the guidelines, the court is allowed to look at uh, criminal history and it's uh, being underrepresented in the record. Uh, the court could have departed upward on this defendant, and it never did. What it did was it gave him a guidelines range sentence. And in the end, uh, in order to show a gross disproportionality, even if we are looking at defendant to defendant within the same conspiracy, these two are not even close. The difference in the sentence was 21 months after all the different things that the district court went through at, uh, at Scott's sentencing and explaining these things at, uh, in its uh, ruling on the 2255 with all the differences. Ultimately, in the end, we're not talking about grossly disproportionate sentences. We're talking about uh, sentences that ended up being 21 months apart. The Lazenby case, uh, cited in uh, the United States brief, I believe in the appellant's brief also, that was, a, I believe, a direct appeal. But that case has been distinguished. This court has put Lazenby in a place where the remand for resentencing because of two disproportionately sentenced defendants was based on the facts of that case. Because the court later in Fry and another case called McEldery limited Lazenby to the facts of that case, where the two defendants were both up on appeal and it could remand for a resentencing on both of them. Here, uh, the only person that would be resentenced, the only one that could uh, conceivably be resentenced, is Roderick Scott. Uh, and he doesn't present the same profile. Uh, Judge Schreier has explained how different they were in her ruling on the 2255, explaining that they were not so similarly situated, even if you were to look at two defendants whose cases uh, or two defendants whose sentences were disparate from each other, even in a, even in a small way. When the court sentenced Scott, it also had before it supervised release revocation. Now, uh, Judge Schreier ultimately ran those sentences concurrently, the revocation sentence. She ran it concurrently to the sentence uh, imposed on the underlying case. But again, when Webb was sentenced, regardless of his parole status, that parole was a state court matter. There was no sentencing for him on any revocation matter or on a revocation of parole or anything of that nature. Uh, there are just so many differences between these two defendants that to say that there's a reasonable probability that one of them would have received a different sentence 
uh, is purely speculative. And this court has repeatedly held that that kind of speculation is insufficient to show that there was a disparate sentence or uh, that there's any likelihood that uh, the result would be different. Uh, to follow up on one of Judge Erickson's questions, and I think I know the answer to this, but would uh, Mr. Tupman have even had access to the co-defendant's pre-sentence report? I don't think he does. Certainly not automatically. Uh, uh, my understanding is that defendants and co-defendants do not automatically get pre-sentence reports for other defendants. So the investigation would have had to have been, I suppose, A, contact the federal probation office, and they would have said he's not on federal probation. Then, and secondly, either contact the state office, or maybe there's a central database you could do. Maybe, maybe you could do a simple online search. I don't know. Um, that might have shown that. I certainly don't know. Uh, they certainly would not have found it out from the pre-sentence report. I suppose there are public documents and public access things that a person could look up. Uh, public defender Tupman here presented quite a compelling argument, as compelling as you can make for a defendant like Roderick Scott with nine felony convictions for drug offenses who committed another one within uh, less than a month after getting on supervision, uh, going on supervised release. Uh, he made some creative arguments. I understand that that doesn't necessarily excuse uh, what, was, what he missed. But he's not trying to claim anything other than and he never tried to do in the affidavit, uh, that he did anything other than represent this defendant. He missed one single thing. One single thing that is completely speculative to believe had, would have made any difference in the whole sentencing profile. And under Strickland, uh, that's, Strickland requires that uh, it has to be something that would have really altered the profile of the defendant. The United States doesn't believe that uh, 2255 relief is warranted here because the defendant hasn't shown uh, ineffective assistance nor prejudice. The United States uh, requests that the courts, the district court's judgment be affirmed. Thank you. Mr. Traeger. The government's argument um, seems to be, they seem to concede that there's an evidentiary gap as to whether Mr. Scott's counsel investigated Mr. Webb. Instead, they argue well, only... Well, I, I think what they really are saying is that there is no evidence that he investigated Mr. Webb. And on this record, any reasonable fact finder would have to conclude that there is no evidence. Right. There's right. no evidence on that score. And so, so you would conclude he didn't do it, right? And, and of course, how could he have done it since his answer was, I don't know. You have access to that information and I don't. Well, we, we don't know what he did, but to Judge Malloy, to your question about how he could have found it given that he couldn't access Mr. Webb's PSR, as we point out on page 25 of our blue brief, 
Mr. Webb's records are readily accessible online with minimal searching for free. But the government focuses its firepower then on the reasonable probability that Mr. Scott's sentence would be different. But the district court gave only one distinction for distinguishing Mr. Scott and Mr. Webb, and that was that Mr. Webb wasn't under court supervision. The magistrate judge said at page 31 of the addendum that was an error or not a material distinction. The government concedes in its brief at page 25 that the district court was mistaken or incorrect about Mr. Webb's status, um, his state parole status. I just have a quick question, too, on the prejudice point, since you're on that. Um, the district court indicated in the 2255 that, hey, if I, I'd just give the same sentence. Why doesn't that, kind of like the harmless error doctrine in a direct appeal, suggest that even if you win, even if you get your evidentiary hearing, you, you, it'd be a Pyrrhic victory. You get your evidentiary hearing, but you get the same sentence. I see my time has expired. Can I answer mm-hmm. the question? The reason, Judge Strass, is that the district court applied the wrong standard. The differences it pointed out were in the context of explaining why Mr. Scott's sentence didn't violate the Eighth Amendment, why his sentence wasn't grossly disproportionate. The district court never properly applied the Strickland standard of whether there was a reasonable probability that his sentence would be shorter. So we would ask this court to reverse and remand for an evidentiary hearing and for the district court to apply the proper standard. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for your time. The briefing and argument were most helpful. Uh, We'll take the case under advisement and uh, render a decision uh, forthwith. Does that conclude the calendar for today? All right. We will stand in uh, recess until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning.